This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. The Chapel Probation Podcast takes a critical look at evangelical colleges and universities, focusing initially on Azusa Pacific University, where I taught English for 15 years. I'm Scott Okamoto, and I'm writing a book about how I deconstructed from faith completely while at APU. This podcast, though, is my tribute to the students and other faculty who survived evangelical higher education. They faced ridiculous racism, sexism, anti-LGBTQ hatred, and all manner of bigotry. From the heartless evils of the prosperity gospel to the destructive pseudo-theology of purity culture, the stories will break your heart, but they will also inspire. These people faced bigotry and fought back. In a weird, kind of sick way, we went through some shit, but we formed identities and we formed communities through it all. I hope you will join us. All right. Okay. Welcome to the Thereafter Podcast, a place where we explore life on the other side of faith change. We're here to break down the binaries, deconstruct the dualities, and wander through what it looks like to live in the gray. In church, we were told that life after leaving would be a bitter wasteland of unfulfilling hedonism, but we've discovered quite the opposite. There's actually a vibrant community of people on the other side of faith who are finding and co-creating space for hope and healing. Come along as we explore the all too often uncharted expanse of evangelicalism, evolving faith, and the life thereafter. Welcome back. Welcome. To another episode. Of the Thereafter Podcast. You know what I I would love like a big eight sided dice where I could roll the dice and have different intros you know Ooh. or maybe even a twenty six sided dice yeah with like just like different catchphrases yeah be like it's you know. your girl Megan back again <laughs> well maybe yeah something like that I was just trying to think of like what would a, How's it going, what would a catchphrase be. It's it's your Maybe bestie and the bisexual. It, we'd have a different. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's your bisexual besties here on the Thereafter podcast. I'm I'm telling you, we could come up with some good little catchphrases. Okay, but bisexual besties, I like. I that. do. Can we become bisexual besties? Yeah, this I kind of think that we are already. I thought that we were. It's kind of hurtful I... that you even questioned. <laughs> <laughs> no. We are, but we haven't called it that. We just need the label now. So yeah, it's just this the is label. a great DTR that we just had. I, now we are bisexual besties. <laughs> uh, I'm really For those excited. Of you who don't know DTR. Define, define the relationship, the relationship which was a Christian thing that you you said like you this was like something that was talked about in youth groups and things. It was never something that I heard until I got into polyamory. Like it wasn't until I started having multiple relationships. Really. Yeah, I think maybe I was just like the culture I grew up in was like, you just don't have relationships with anyone of the opposite sex. So no need to define anything. <laughs> just don't have them. I first heard it from Louis Giglio. No way. <laughs> I just saw a thing about he Louis Giglio. He came to our campus and he was telling a story and yeah. 
I just saw something about him speaking at Liberty. I think people were just critiquing that he would be speaking at Liberty and like bringing up yeah. like, you know, ooh, like Liberty, really? As they should be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I heard DTR in the context of, and, and for me, it was like, you, you know, I had this whole notion that I, lady in waiting, passion and purity, lady in the waiting. messaging that, that was a fucking book I read. I, I have journaled through it. Oh my God. I, don't even get me started. All the different qualities you should be developing in yourself while you're waiting to be pursued by a quote unquote spiritual leader. And the, the reason you have to have a DTR is because they make it so vague that you're like, are we friends? Are we intentional friends? Are we allowed to be friends? Oh, now we're moving towards dating. And by that point, you're practically engaged if you're a Christian. So, I mean, it, yeah, that I like my own version of DTRs now. Oh, hey, this leads right into something I saw on Twitter the other day that we could talk about for a second. I know you had other things, but did you back to Twitbit? Did you see? I'm back on Twitter. It's like a it's like a bad ex girlfriend that I can't or boyfriend. It's somebody I just can't fully break up. Yeah, uh, I feel it. So so there was some guy had a wild take about attraction. Did you see that? Let's talk about this. Yes, I was just looking into this. Okay, I went on a rabbit hole. Okay, first tell me the take. It was he said uh attraction to anyone that is not your spouse. Sexual attraction to anyone that is not your spouse is a sin. Period. And and you would think that this like there are like some like nuance to this take. Somebody specifically asked in the replies like but what about like your significant other before you get married? Obviously, it's not a sin to be attracted to them. And he doubled down and said, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> it is a sin to be yeah. attracted to your fiance until you're married. And then sexual attraction only to your spouse, a wild take. Um, that there were a lot of Christians in this dude's replies to be fair, um, saying this is wild. Okay, a couple of things, though, because I think that the dude got owned by one of the repliers that I don't know exactly who this is, but it was like um, HC Exvangelical um, was going back and forth in a very clear way where this original poster was kind of like, you're just using a straw man. And they were like, nope, this isn't straw man. This is what this is. And they were like really just answering all the questions until the guy just like backed down. I thought that was that was happening in the comments. But also when you click on his profile, this guy that had that take has a book out called The Lust of the Flesh. Yeah. Did you see yeah. that? And he's a doctor. <laughs> It says doctor before his name. I'm sure it's like an honorary doctorate program where he like made something with paper mache and a like unaccredited university gave him a doctorate. Um, but yeah, the man is a doctor, <laughs> according to oh, somebody. Oh man! And once once I even saw the people who endorsed the book, I was like, all right, I blocked, I blocked the guy, <laughs> I blocked it off. Who endorsed the book? <laughs> is someone anyone juicy? Was it like John Owen, Cooper? Owen. Owen. What's that guy's name? Owen Stretch. How do you say his last Stratch, name? Stretch. Stretchin. Stretch. Stretch. Have we never? Known? I don't know. <laughs> this, is, this is. We've always just seen him on Twitter. Who like? Who, yeah, I. Uh, yeah, that's. Hilarious. I know who you're talking about. 
Yeah. Anyway, yeah, that was a good discussion. And also, can I just say how liberating it is when you're able to tell a partner, like, I think that part person is hot, and especially when you're bi and you're like able to share attraction to similar genders and and kind of compare your types. Oh yeah. I, I, like, I, there's like, I I just that whole take is so toxic of having attraction to other people be a bad thing, whether you frame it as a sin or whether you frame it as. I don't know, like cheating with your eyes or whatever. Nothing is more bonding than like sharing a uh, an experience of attraction with somebody. Like, like yeah. I think it was in Portland. There was that really hot barista. Remember when we were in when we went up to like Hood River and we went in to get those coffees, and there was that like really really cute boy with the mustache that made our coffees. And I remember my wife was there, and I was like, "Yo." get a load it, you know, <laughs> and like that being able to like yes. have that moment is a beautiful thing. It brings us closer together. And I think I, I also think that it and we won't get into all this, but when I think about attachment styles, I feel like that's the root of all of this conversation. Right. Like I feel like as I've learned about secure attachment, that has way more to do with these conversations than it has to do with like. I don't know, theology or sin or any of these other pieces. Mm, yeah. Thousand percent. What else? Um, there's something else I saw on Twitter, more toxic le legislation. And we tend, I feel like we tend to kind of avoid it, but I also, I want to address it because I want to just say it out loud and name that it's, it's gross and it's happening. And I think there was a bill being proposed in South Carolina um, so that, students in the K-12 system wouldn't be able to use their pronouns unless they matched the the sex that they were born with. And, and also it would apply to teachers not being able to use titles. And I just was, I, yeah, it, I mean, I, I saw my trans friends posting about how disgusting this legislation is. I have lots of big feelings about as an educator about legislation that impacts education in this way. And it's so wild because there's this push against social emotional learning. There's this push against being trauma informed. And I constantly say, I feel like the legislation is trauma inducing. And when you just add this, I mean, there's like, this isn't affecting their education. This is just like, let's just outlaw them being able to use their pronouns, okay, it is affecting their education, but because it affects their social emotional health and well being, mm -hmm. you know. So it's like, how are they able to learn when they're in an environment that's not safe for them? Yeah, I one of my one one of the headlines that really stood out to me about some of this legislation. And I don't know if this was that exact bill because this was not a state bill. There was like a federal bill um, that was being proposed. Yep, it's happening all over. About chosen names and, you know, basically making it illegal. And, th and this headline said, uh, you know, Senator Rafael Cruz, who goes by Ted, uh, decided to back this bill that would prevent people from using any other name than their legally given name, right? Like, so like... Ted Cruz, who goes like yes. Rafael Cruz, who goes by Ted, uh, backs Bill to prevent people from using a name that's not their legally given name. Like how ridiculous! Like how wild <laughs> that. And we know that's happening. Yeah, and this is all happening because people are are thinking, oh, if I can rally against trans people, then maybe I can build some political clout, which is, it makes me sick to think that that 
our trans friends, our our trans siblings are being used in this way as political, you know, fodder, clout, and political fodder. Yeah, that's the word exactly. I'm looking for. And and it's just it's so ridiculous. And then at the expense of the well being of of education students that are in the public school system, when the real issue which I would say gun control is just being largely ignored. So it's like they're trying to say, let's take out social emotional health. Let's triple down on our our bills against queer folks. And then let's really just ignore the problem that that schools are facing, which is gun violence. Yeah. I mean, I just I, I can't. Or, or, or the global, you know, uh, uh, disaster that uh, millions of Americans are calling um, for a ceasefire for, right? Like we're just gonna we're just exactly. we're just gonna ignore uh, all of this stuff that's going on it and and make the conversation about something that is so um, contrived, right? It is it is a a mm-hmm. boogeyman issue that they have made up uh, and you know, not even originally made up because it's like the exact same rhetoric and language they used to, you know, uh, uh, go aggressively against gay and lesbian rights in the 80s and the 90s, right? I mean, this is the same rhetoric they were using to demonize gay folks that they're using to demonize trans folks. Um, Well, and... Some of the folks that were demonized in the previous time are people that are on the the side of things doing the demonize. Like I think we need to name that that it doesn't just it's not just a binary of this or that. I think people just kind of jump sometimes onto the into the role of oppressor and and it just it for sure it it's out of control for sure for sure and 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 there's a racial dynamic to that too. I think we've talked about it on this show. Um, if you haven't on this on this podcast, if you have not watched the show Pose, you should watch the show Pose. It's on FX. I think it's on Netflix still. It, it used to be at least like it gives a really very enlightening look into the ballroom scene and um, the trans and queer community of, I believe, the 80s and the 90s in New York City um, and specifically brings light to the fact that gay white men in gay bars were a violent threat to trans women of color in that time. Uh, and and there, there's a storyline of a um, trans woman of color going in and, and sitting at this gay, in this gay bar and being thrown out and, you know, uh, beat essentially because, you know, there was still a racial element to white men, even if they were gay, having a level of privilege that other folks with other intersecting marginalizations did not have. And, and you know, <laughs> there's, there's a podcast called Too Far Pod. Uh, Robbie Hoffman, one of my favorite comedians, uh, she had a little segment on TikTok that was like, gay men are still men. Can we just say that? Can we just say gay men are still men? <laughs> <laughs> like there is still something, right? There is still uh, uh, privilege to be unpacked when you're a cis man. Yeah, that that if you ignore it, you could just end up becoming the exact oppressor, right? Like you said. Absolutely, yeah. And I get I get fired up about I get fired up about all kinds of 
discriminatory legislation, but especially as an educator, seeing the things that are happening. I mean, they're passing laws to help teach kids reading the way that kids should learn how to read. That stuff, great, right? Like, let's 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 look at research. Let's pass laws that you know we have to teach reading a certain way because we know that that's what the research shows. But then we go and we start seeing legislators just spit out at a rally that that kindergarten students are learning sex positions, which is just not true, or the kitty litter thing. And it's like with with a five-minute Google search, I would even say 30-second Google search, you can find out these things aren't true, but instead you'd rather just go along Twitter and just like wildfire, just get angry and enraged about things that aren't even existing when, yes, like you're like you pointed out, Cortland, there's genocide happening on the other side of the world. And we could be spending that in energy calling for a ceasefire. Yeah. Disinformation. The disinformation is a problem everywhere. Um, I I'll 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 give a little um free shout out to Tim over at New Evangelicals because I've been following what Tim's been doing this week. Um, you know, speaking of white guys, no, I'm just kidding, Tim. Anyway, if you're listening, uh, Tim's out at, at Turning Point USA's national conference of some kind. I don't know. It looks horrific. Um, and he had made a story or something and misquoted what had happened in a chant at this thing. And he got back on and was like, hey, listen, like I, I misheard what was happening here. Obviously, I listened to it. I think some people in the audience misheard and also joined in the chant in a, in a more uh, a divisive and inappropriate way. Whatever the case, Tim made a point to say like, hey, we need to be careful that we are also not spreading misinformation, right? We cannot call out misinformation on the other side and then join in. There was a, there was a TikToker who I really love. His name, I believe, is uh, Andrewski is the handle that he uses on, on um, TikTok. And he did a thing about, like, you know, what, as creators, we should be responsible during things like genocide happening. Like, what, how, how should we be speaking? And he was like, it's very important for him. He's like, I am not trained as a journalist. I want to make sure I'm deferring to voices who are vetting information because sometimes you can do more harm by sharing misinformation uh, that was maybe put out by the other side to discredit you, right? If you share this thing that you're like, oh, this is a horrible thing that happened in Palestine, it turns out to not be a true thing that you're sharing. Now your voice for the victims in Palestine is 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 hurt because you have now advocated upon something that is uh, inaccurate. And and people will use misinformation that way. Like Republicans, conservatives, um, for lack yeah. of a, a, a better language around that binary, will put out intentionally liberal, enrage, enraging content in order to get progressive people to share that content and then get called out that they're sharing misinformation to discredit those creators. That's a tactic being used. And so it's important for us to really think about and and be think critically about the information that we are getting enraged about online, especially now when it's like well, easy to believe anything. You know, you're like, oh my God, yeah. this is a very easy thing to believe because the world is wild place. And I saw a creator recently that was like, 
kind of doing talking about this very thing where sometimes out of loyalty or social equity that we have with somebody, um, we tend to just give someone the benefit of the doubt and just believe it and roll with it. And so they were kind of, they were saying like, I could say one plus one is two, two plus two is four, four plus four is eight, and eight times eight is 16. And you may not have caught that I said eight times eight is 16, or maybe you said it and you, and you, you know, just kind of went past it. But like, you need to be careful when you're consuming things because some of the things, even if there's a lot of things that line that you line up with with what a creator says, there might be things that are untrue. And they were doing this in a way that was debunking even a progressive liberal take on something. They were like, this th- this part's not true. This part's not true. This part's true. You know, and so it's just it, that piece of it where it's like you need to think critically about what you're watching and consuming and seeing. I think yeah. that's so important. I forget whether I said this, I may have said this on last week's episode, but if so, whatever. Elad uh, uh, Naharai, who who was a guest on the podcast, um, mm-hmm. Jewish creator who uh, I love dearly and makes a lot of incredible content, he has been writing on Twitter and in other places about right alt-right accounts that are using pro-Palestine content to grow their audience and then shift to an alt-right message. Mm-hmm. So they are oftentimes anti-Semitic, uh, previously anti-Semitic accounts who are basically posting very like um, intentionally misleading pro-Palestinian content to kind of gather in progressives or leftists or, you know, people who are trying to to promote a pro-Palestine message. Um, and then they end up amassing huge follower, you know, increases. And then they're like, perpetuating some sort of alt-right idea. Uh, this happens in spiritual communities a lot of times too, where, you know, we've talked about the crunchy, uh, or, you know, spiritual to alt-right pipeline. Mm -hmm. This, you know, these are tactics that the alt-right uses because they don't really care about truth at the end of the day. And so if they can use a, you know, uh, you know, a black lives matter post or a pro Palestine post to gather followers, they're going to they they'll say whatever they need to say and and we need to be again just engaging with content media literacy is so important right now in the world that we're living in because again there is so much happening that when you talk about this legislation you could say that they're promoting legislation to do all kinds of wild things and i would probably believe it because it's because it's wild what 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 is actually mm-hmm. true yeah absolutely Whew. Well, I feel like we could go down so many different rabbit holes, but I want to get into this incredible interview that we have. Um, we got the chance to sit down with a guest that we've been wanting to talk to for quite a long time, and we happen to get that chance to do that right before his book is releasing, so I'm super pumped. Cortland, do you want to... Yeah, Pastor Trey on the I show. I set it up. Do you want uh, let's, I mean, let's just get into it. I think the man needs no introduction. Uh, he is one of my favorite followers or followers. He's one of my favorite follows across social media. He posts everywhere. Um, I'm so excited about his book and this conversation was such a treat for us to get to have. So without further ado, let's get into it. Pastor Trey. All right, another episode of the Thereafter Podcast. Megan, uh, we have a guest here that we've been like looking forward to for a long time, and I'm really excited. You want to intro yeah. intro who we have with us, Megan? Welcome, Pastor Trey. Pastor Trey, yo, what's happening? Oh man, 
I have loved, you know, I listen to your podcast, the Three Black Men podcast, when I'm running sometimes. I love your podcast. Wow. I'm a huge fan. Listen to what the, the running podcast. That's 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 high praise <laughs> that's, right there. That's my running. Like, yeah. If you can if you can run listening to the three black men talk about theology, culture, and the world around us, that is that is dedication. That's I didn't I didn't know we were that good, but I appreciate that. Uh, it's on my yeah. rotation. Yes. Um, but welcome, and just to kind of kick us off, we'd love for you to give our listeners a little bit of context of kind of wh- where your faith journey began kind of how you Who grew you up are, in faith where you came from <laughs> as little or yeah, as much as sure. you want to share that most definitely i like many christians in these here united states um grew up in christian circles right my mom loves telling the story of the first time she brought me to church because i was born on a wednesday and in church that sunday at four wow. days old Right. And so um, my mom was very involved there. She led Girl Scout troops at the church, taught praise dance at the church. And uh, we were in children's choirs and all sorts of stuff. We we were there a lot. But unlike a lot of people, I don't really carry a lot of baggage or trauma around that. But I'm also not one of those people who never left the church. It wasn't like a, a... stopping point where I just decided like no I'm done with this and leave my faith there was I, I can almost remember the day when my mom asked me she was like hey are you going to church this morning that was the first time it was a question normally it was wake up get ready for church and she asked me. I thought it was a trick question I was like uh, uh that's no. an option <laughs> yeah I'm like uh no and she was like okay and she left and then from then on I was like okay, okay so I can uh, kind of do my own thing you know and um from that point on like adolescence through young adulthood I, I i still identified as a christian like if you asked me if i believe in god i would tell you yes but i wasn't really taking anything seriously you know um it's not like i got shuttled to a conservative uh evangelical christian college or a bible college or nothing like that now i went to the university of miami right like they have an endowed chair for uh, atheism and secular humanism at that school. It was, was really outside. Um, and that that's where I found myself as I came into adulthood. Um, and it wasn't until I met a woman who eventually became my wife, who did not grow up in the church, but had a curiosity and asked me if I would go to church with her. that I started going back to church and found myself in a situation uh, under a pastor and leaders who started fanning flames of curiosity, right? And it was never a matter of me just not questioning and blindly following everything I heard, but started connecting dots. And um, eventually I I ended up in ministry because uh, the guy who was leading the the youth ministry at the time was moving and I recognized a bunch of kids who like needed somebody and I kind of stepped in there. And that kind of led into the person who was now like Pastor Trail Five, right? So it was a bit of a securitous route, and that's why it, that informs a lot of how I approach ministry, why I don't hold things too tightly, because um, I can empathize a lot with people who are unsure of where they stand on things and uh, trying to figure out how to be a good person as they figure out who and what God is to them. Mm. Did I answer the question? Absolutely. Yeah, like perfectly. Okay. And and I think it really brings up an interesting point, because I think that like that aspect of like curiosity that you have about God and the church and ministry, but not coming from a place of necessarily trauma is something that's relatively, I think 
unique and we don't necessarily run into every day in the circles that we're yeah. in. <laughs> so I think yeah. that that's a really unique like perspective to be coming from that is like pretty unique to you probably. Yeah, to some extent. And I think some of it comes from, I don't think I've ever been in what could reasonably called a high control environment. Or, or if I was in one of those environments, I was shielded from it from, by the very nature of who my parents were. Um, Cause my dad was somebody who very much refused to be controlled. Like marching with the Black Panthers, the Young Lords, locked up every now and then a bit of a revolutionary bent, dropped out of schools when he decided it was time to. Still a brilliant guy, went to an Ivy League, didn't finish cause he couldn't be controlled, you know? Um, and so like with, with that as a role model, I, I don't think me and, and a high controlled environment would have been too much of a good fit. But at the same time, there was always a quest for it now. It's like both of my parents were brilliant in their own right. And so just always this driving to, to like know more, right? <laughs> it kind of mm-hmm. drew me. And I, I won't say there was no point where I, I went through the phase of, of like an arrogant type of faith. Yeah, I had, I had little phases when I thought I knew more than I did and things of that nature. But when it comes to the actual trauma of faith and the things that I tie to it, I don't carry a lot of that baggage, but I do understand it because I know lots of people who did and I understand exactly how that goes because I get how religion works, right? Like I'm not just a student of Christianity. I'm a, I'm a student of how religion works as a function of societies, cultures, and groups, the significance that we ascribe to stories and signs, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to jump too far ahead because I want to get into we, we want to talk about your book and just kind of how that came about and everything. Ooh. But I do, I'm so I eager have, to talk about. Your I know. Book. <laughs> but so there's excited. something the way that you're talking about this makes me because I, I read some um, sections of it and you differentiated between a lot of folks that are kind of talking about white evangelicalism, white American evangelicalism as being kind of the you need to evangelize this and you need to convert everybody into your version of Christianity versus kind of the Christianity that you grew up with. I think the way you phrased it was like as celebrating and affirming who you are and, and as like kind of helping you understand your own identity. Is that is that kind of resonate or is that kind of what you mean when you're talking about your understanding these high control environments, but yours was your experience of Christianity was so different. Yeah, that sounds like something I might have said. Uh, <laughs> 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 no, and, and, and really, I think that's it because we a lot of times get grounded in this idea of a great commission, right? Like go and make disciples, and that means that we have to get people to believe the right things. Where when you think about what a disciple is, uh, teaching them to obey my commandments, the one commandment that Jesus c- continually reiterates is to love one another, right? Love God, love neighbor. Love is the commandment. Yes. What is love but the commitment to wholeness, right? Restoring that to which God has called someone or something to be. So if we are to look at stories like in Luke, we got the three parables back to back, right? We got a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. And neither one of those stories indicate that there was any value lost at any point in time in that coin or that sheep or that son. It's a celebration when we can find those things, not because like they've come to repentance, but because that something of value has been found, right? And so sometimes in my mind, I think we lose track of what it means to create a disciple. A disciple is somebody who recognizes the truth of what God says about them, who, who you are, that God called you good uh, before we even knew what any, any idea of sin was. And so um, I think there's a degree to which 
people approach the very nature of what evangelism or good news or gospel is um, that differentiates the way that our faith shows up in the world around us. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to talk a little bit about, I mean, I, I we're going to jump around a bit, but I jump have, around. I'm loose, man. I'm loose. <laughs> I have only I've only read the very beginning, uh, the basically introduction and just a little bit into the first chapter of your book so far uh, on my pre-release copy. I have a pre-ordered copy that I cannot wait to get in, but I had to get into the digital copy a little early. Um, yeah. You talk about theologizing, right? And right. the difference between that and maybe your standard work of a theologian. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that difference uh, that you highlight kind of in the book? Yeah. Okay. So uh, sometimes I just be saying stuff, right? Like <laughs> everybody's guilty. Sometimes we just say stuff. And the truth of the matter is, and I say it in the book, at the end of the day, yes, I am a theologian, right? Um, some people will call me a public theologian. I get uncomfortable with the label because that people expect you to conduct yourself a certain way as a theologian. Um, and I have the some of the credentials and stuff that you'll look for. But no, at the end of the day, what I enjoy doing is searching for God in the crevices, right? I can turn almost anything into a story or a lesson about God, what God is saying about creation. And the work of a theologizer, as I, uh, uh, as I outline in the book, what a, what a theologizer does, what theologizing is about is that active pursuit of trying to trace and track God in the here and now. It's not so much concerned with doctrine so much as it is the idea that God's story is still being written in and around your life. Um, and that's not to denigrate the place that scripture and tradition holds in forming a faith. But if our faith is of any use to us, if it's any, if, if it's a living faith, then we have to be able to make something of it right here and right now. And so when I talk about theologizing, it's okay, what is this situation saying about God and what is God saying about this situation that we're facing right now. And it folds in tradition, it folds in scripture, it folds in all of these stories. But at the same time, can can I believe that God is using my life as a sacred text? Mm. You know? And that's what theologizing is all about. Something that um people don't necessarily expect with a, a label like theologian. And it's not to say theologians don't do that work, but I want to be clear that no, this isn't just an academic pursuit for me. It's how I keep this faith alive. For me, at least. Yeah. It's, I mean, that middle section in between, you know, the academic side of it, which to me feels like very inaccessible, you know, to a lot yeah. of people. And then there's like that doctrine side of it, like you talked about, which is like kind of like, hey, how, how to be a right or correct Christian. And you're right. like in this like space, like right in the middle that's like, oh, no, like, let's just talk about like what's happening and what we're all experiencing together. For sure, because there's this weird thing that happens when you go to seminary, right? There's a few different types of people you'll find. You'll find people who want to pursue careers in the academy. You'll find people who are preparing for careers in like local ministry or parachurch ministry. And the thing that happens, particularly when you're in, not in a conservative evangelical seminary, and I have been to one of those, and Education is quite different there. Um, but when, when you are in a, a more mainline seminary, you encounter a lot of information that you don't know what to do with if you have to go back to a local church context because some of those contexts, particularly if you're in a more conservative like church setting, 
particularly uh, if you're serving in a more like conservative setting, you can't go back there and start talking about documentary hypothesis and all sorts of stuff because you might mess somebody up. And this bad pastoral practice to like yank the carpet from somebody's faith like that. And so what happens is a lot of people who go and get these formal theological educations feel like they have to check it at the door before they go back to the regular churches, right? And then you have the people who are going for a more academic career uh, who then stay in the academy and do not ch touch the lives of people who are like actually trying to work out what faith is like. So part of what I try to do is bridge that gap. And it's not a matter of taking a sledgehammer into people's faith systems all the time. Um, sometimes it's a matter all, of, and all I don't the really time. use the word, <laughs> yeah, all the time. Sometimes, <laughs> not, sometimes, not no, the beliefs are yeah, sometimes your, your, your beliefs are trash. We need we need to look at this. That, that's that's a bad belief. And and I say that sometimes. It makes people uncomfortable. Like, no, some some of this is bad. It sounds innocent on paper, but I need to let you know what the implications of this are in the long run, right? Like if penal substitutionary atonement or <laughs> the idea that God's will was to torture his son for the redemption of humanity, what that tells you is that part of what being godly is like is you inflicting pain on somebody for their own good. That's sadistic, you know? Um, and so <laughs> some of my work is is connecting those dots and the real um, looking at some of the stuff you pick up in the academy and how does that impact us on the ground. I try to be a bit of a bridge between two worlds that don't often connect in ways that I think that they could and should. I love that. I Okay, so I was reading your chapter about deconstruction and I wrote, I jotted down a quote because it was, I honestly, it was, it's one of those, you, you have one of those books where I feel like I could highlight more than I don't highlight, you know, but um, <laughs> here is what it says. And I loved this and I would love for you to unpack it a little bit. It says, if we encounter an experience and assume the paradigm we use to encounter it is the only way to have encountered it, we have robbed ourselves a chance of a chance at community. Yeah. And I really felt like there was so much in there, but um, just thinking about those multiple perspectives, because I feel like you bring that to your Twitter presence, you bring that on your podcast, you bring that into your book of like building that community and, and like you're saying, having that bridge. Um, and and I, I would love for you to, to speak to that just a little bit more. Most definitely. There's something that happens and i'm not sure i don't want to sound more worldly than i am like i've traveled more than i have i traveled a little bit not too much but something i've noticed particularly with americans and like westerners in general where we prioritize individualism um we don't often slow down and consider how somebody else might experience something that we have experienced if they're processing that mm -hmm. the same way and it's something that i became aware of like Around this time last year, I was actually in Israel in a group of like 30 pastors, mostly conservative, charismatic, evangelical pastors. And at one point I was like, I need y'all to understand that I'm black. There were a few black people there, like maybe like 25, 30% black people there, right? I was like, I'm black and I'm black on purpose, right? It's not that I, I don't, I'm not trying to ignore that. I'm not trying to make you comfortable by ignoring that, but I, I'm saying this so that you understand that the way we are processing and receiving this experience right here in this holy land is is different, fundamentally different because of the history that I carry with me. And the reason I said that is because so many people there are, are little things just, just aren't even on their scale because they, 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 it's not something that they think about on a regular basis, right? And um, 
when we fail to like just pump the brakes and consider how somebody else might be experiencing something or if there's another way to approach it, I think we kind of lose part of our own humanity, our ability to connect with people. Like I remember that chapter was written with a very specific experience in mind because uh, like you mentioned, it was a chapter on deconstruction. It was somebody who actually had a, a whole online platform, including a podcast, talking about deconstruction and their deconversion story. And what it manifested as was not them, to, they weren't content to tell just their story. What they needed to do was prove to me that I was wrong. Mm. Which, okay, cool, you get to feel that way. I'm not obligated to entertain your every argument. And that's what they wanted. They wanted a debate. I'm like, beloved, like that's that's not what I'm here for, for the simple fact. The other, like, if we're all the way honest about this, um, a lot of people take that that track aren't as educated as they would like you to believe. Like you're, you're getting a lot of your information off of YouTube. What I'm trying to tell you is I actually understand your pain. I get how you got to this point. I, I get the the pain points and the trauma, especially if you, if you identify as queer and I get that and then you were pushed into a certain Bible colleges where you earn credits that you can't use nowhere and all this stuff. Yeah, no, that that stinks. That is not my story at all. And for you to act as though I am constrained by how you have experienced life is robbing you of an opportunity that we can have. Because, like, I understand your story. Do you understand mine? Do you desire to? No, you just want to be right, right? And mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you're actually carrying all of the damaging things that you found in Christianity and in your church with you on the way out, right? Like, that, that's that's bad if there's a cross on the front of it, and it's bad if you take the cross off, <laughs> and and there's there's something inherently dehumanizing about um, not just missing but outright shunning opportunities to connect with people's stories and, mm. and to see how they're experiencing the world. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I I I hate the fact that I like visualized three different white dude podcasters as you were telling that story. I like I yeah, could like, I could like visualize at least three dudes. <laughs> I don't know who it is. You don't have to say, but I, it's sad that I could visualize three people at least instantly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little interchangeable at that point. Like, that's, that's the other thing about it. And people like, they're like, Oh, is this the way that a pastor is supposed to talk? And I'm like, Look, so you think my job as a pastor is to sit here and entertain every single internet stranger who wants to argue with me. Is that, is that what you believe right now? You know? Um, and it's just, it's just funny because it's like the, the whole debate me culture is something that a lot of times we take out of the, these charges, the, the whole idea that, um, that faith is tied to an apologetic where we must be able to argue everything down to the, no, that is corny. I want to enjoy my life. You understand? Like <laughs> I want to, I want to watch football. I want to play games with my kids. I want to like, I don't care about arguing all these points. I'm not in here to convince every single person to believe exactly as I do. Um, Yeah. But can yeah. I say there there's you ride an interesting spot on that spectrum though because I think that there is kind of like not to make everything a binary right but there's there's two ends of the spectrum in terms of people who are engaging every argument and then people who never stand up for anything yeah. and are just trying to like be neutral on all counts I personally, as a person who's not a person of faith, an atheist person, I listen to the new translation, your podcast, and I get something out of it. Like I learn something, I'm I'm engaged in a way, and I don't feel a pressure to have to be a Christian 
to learn from you. Like, I don't feel wow. like you're like, I'm just talking to Christians. You're just talking to people. Yeah. But second, I don't ever feel unsafe. Like if somebody was to be homophobic towards me or someone was to, like, I feel like you will be like, sit the fuck down. Like you're, you, you will speak up and like, like you're not just neutral all the time. Right. No, not at all. Um, and so like that's cowardice, yeah. that's an interesting I think spot that you don't find typically you find people on one end of that spectrum. They're fighting everybody or they're never going to take a stand anywhere. Yeah, I think a lot of it for me is I know where I stand and I can communicate that pretty clearly, but I'm not going to keep doing it. Right. Like I said what I said. It's one of those things. So there are people who want to argue and I'm like, no, you can go back and read what I said the first time. And first of all, like some people feel a way about it. Like, is that how a pastor's supposed to act? I'm not the internet's pastor guy. Like, I can't be everybody's <laughs> pastor. There are people on the internet who have, we've entered a relationship of mutual accountability, but just every stranger, like, no, you don't get to pull that card. But here's how this goes. I have to protect my peace and my time. And if people are dedicated to being disagreeable or dedicated to misunderstanding me, there's no wisdom in me entertaining that all the time. And so, like, yeah, I, I feel comfortable saying what I said and leaving it be. And that's not to say I'm not open to discussion, but I can't debate with everybody, right? Like, one of the swaggiest quotes I ever heard in my life, and I, I haven't been able to bring myself to say it. I think it was um, Dr. John Henry Clark, who at an actual formal debate was like, let me be clear, I've de dedicated my entire adult life to this subject. I only debate my equals, all others I teach. Right. Mm. <laughs> um, and that's sort of my energy. Like, oh, you, you want to debate? Like, yeah, I got a little graphic. I, I post sometimes it ticks people off. I'm like, you don't have to pay me. And I, I post my pay scale every time. Cause then, like, no, this, this is this is social media. This is not something I do to, to make myself angry. Why would I sit here and <laughs> do that? And so when you talk about that middle space, it's like, yeah, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And so um, the main thing I stand for is love. We, we don't get there by sitting there telling everybody that they're going to hell after we've already constructed a hell for them here on earth, right? Uh, but at the same time, I don't believe. The other thing about it is just central algorithms and dynamics. A lot of the people who want to do that stuff have like 900, like like 90 followers or something like that. And that's not to say that's important, but if I'm sitting here at 20,000, I'm literally amplifying nonsense every time I go back and forth with it, you know? Um, yeah. And that's just not smart. It's not wise in my book, and so I try to avoid that. Yeah, that um, protect your peace too. Um, I am curious, and I know this is kind of like going back a little bit, but how did you get into starting to speak publicly about all of this into Twitter, into the podcasting that led to to you writing this book? Yeah, that's a great question. So I've never been short for words. <laughs> like I've, I've always been a, a sort of opinionated guy. It wasn't until probably the last like eight to ten years of my life where I started getting smarter about how I did that and less reckless with it. Um, but when it came to being something on a public voice, and I think I even talk about this in the book a little bit, 2020 changed a lot when um, a lot of white people's eyes were open to the fact that you, you just didn't know any black people. You don't hear any black voices. That's something that uh, I, I think a lot of people haven't stopped to name, that in the United States in the year 2023, we're almost in 2024 right now, that you can live a perfectly comfortable life 
as a white person without a single meaningful relationship with a black person. It's very, very, very possible in large parts of the country. And it's not to say anything like it's not being intentionally racist or anything like that. Like, oh, I'm not accusing white people of intentional racism and doing that. Most white people in this country can live a perfectly normal and fulfilling life without a single meaningful relationship with a black person. And so when 2020 happened with the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and all of the unrest that that brought, along with the pandemic shutting things down, people spending more time online, I was a black dude that uh, was saying stuff and a lot of people were connected with it because I was also a Christian. And so folding that in, um, more people just started paying attention. At the same time, I met Rob and Sam and uh, we started a really strong friendship that then turned into a podcast where we covered a whole lot of things. And that ended up being a real um, blessing to us, particularly over the early stages of the pandemic when people were shut in the house. Um, it was a blessing not only to us, but uh, uh, community of people who just wanted to come around and feel seen and heard and um from that i, I recognize that there is a place because ultimately the church the local church i serve in a local church context as well right um, those are most successful when people feel seen and when they can feel belonging and when i realized there was a way to make that happen in digital spaces right online i started spending more time and trying to cultivate that and that um, led to a lot of really meaningful relationships with people I've still never met in real life. And uh, some people were like, yo, you should write a book. And I'm like, hey, yeah, that'd be cool, wouldn't it? And they were like, no, I'm serious. And um, so I started giving it more thought and workshopping some ideas with some people. And then it turned into Theologizing Bigger, which, um, like, if if I never wrote another book, I feel like I did all right with this one. I want to I wanna do it again because um, I'm learning in this process that writing a book was the easiest part. <laughs> but at the same time, I, I wanted to put out a book where if, if I had to hang it up after this, like if I, if I retire from the world of being an author, I wanted something that communicated my heart for people, uh, for wholeness, for cultivating the imagination, for making people feel seen. And so um, the journey that we took from just being a guy who says a lot, uh, to being a guy who recognizes that whether it's in a local church space, whether it's online, people want to feel seen, people want to feel belonging. Um, I, try, I try to make that come across in uh, a book that will help people. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. C can you talk a little bit more about, like, the word imagination and, like, how, like, you talk about, like, not necessarily your experience of like seeing God in the world and, and, and theologizing is uh, not necessarily something that came out of like some hurt or trauma, but more like a imagination and exploration of yeah. something. And so I just like you use that word imagination. And I think that that For is sure. a lot of people look at theology through a real like, I don't know, more forensic critical lens and not mm -hmm. an imaginative creative yes. lens yeah for sure at the end of the day we have to deal with the fact that god is imaginary um and and that saying me me saying that sentence is discomforting for a lot of believing people right there are lots of people who are agnostic or atheist they hear that they cheer fine you, you can have that moment and cheer but i want to be clear <laughs> what i'm saying right here is that when we talk about god we're not talking about someone or something that we can see and touch any idea that we have about God is either constructed in our head or received from a story that was passed down to us. Our capacity to relate 
to the divine is only as strong as our ability to imagine, to construct an image of what that divine person looks like. And so if the image of God that we've constructed is a totalitarian, uh, uh, totalitarian or uh, a dominatrix or a sadist, if that's the image we have of God, then what it means to be God-like will reflect that. If the image of God that we have constructed is one of love and nurturing, then what it means to be godly and godlike will reflect that. And so I think it's important for me to name in my work that theology is a work of imagination. Who is this God that we believe in? What is this God that we believe in? And that's where this starts for me. Now, a lot of that is why I'm comfortable in spaces with people who don't believe what I believe in or who are outspoken about not being believers because at the end of the day, I've been in ministry long enough to know that there are lots of people who are believers who don't know what they believe in because we, we're, we're leaning into stories and words and doctrines and affirmations of things and all of these creeds without really thinking like, no, who is this God that I believe in? We haven't engaged that imagination. And if we haven't done that, then it's not going to be hard for somebody to come and rock the boat when they, when they pose one single question. We've been afraid of questions this whole time because everything was so concrete. No, we need to re-engage our imagination and think about who this God is that we're wrestling with. Am I making sense? Yeah, yeah that's um, absolutely So sense. It's so good. I had to hold myself back from saying amen a few times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and for me, I think that's an important point because at the end of the day, there are people who leave Christianity because they inherited creeds and pillars that they have to uphold. And when they no longer feel that they can uphold, they think they're leaving something behind. Christianity is a bit more than just the creeds. It's also a culture, right? So there are a lot of people who are functionally Christian atheists or functionally Christian agnostics or whatever. And it's because they, having found their imagination, feel like they can no longer belong to the structures that they came from. That's a perfectly reasonable place to be, in, in my opinion, right? Um, and some of my work is letting people know uh, that, like, no, we need to pay attention to our imagination because it is playing a much larger role in how we conduct ourselves, which is more important than what we believe, right? Um, I need to be, like, even for Christians, how, how we conduct ourselves is going to tell everybody much more than what we say we believe does. And the God that we're imagining like, is going to impact that. Yeah, and I think it also, the, what you're saying now also connects with that piece about understanding all of the different paradigms. And I think, and I, I come back to this piece about deconstruction because I think a lot of our listeners are folks that are deconstructing. And, and what I think often happens, and something that I've learned a lot from you, from Robert Monson, from Alicia T. Crosby, I think what often happens is you get white folks that are deconstructing out of white evangelicalism that are yeah. like, fuck religion, that have never understood, hey, liberation theology has been around all this time. Like, yeah. and, and liberation theology has been making people feel seen and affirming identities, or it, even queer theology has been around. And so... I, I would love to hear you speak a little bit to that like decolonization piece that's often missing in those deconstruction spaces. Mm. Yeah, most definitely. Because at the end of the day, um, <laughs> when I mentioned the idea of, of leaving Christianity behind but taking all of the harmful things with you, one of the things we have mm -hmm. to deal with is that um, in many 
strains of Christianity in America, white supremacy is a given, right? It, it it just is what it is. And so we're not even thinking about the fact like, and that's not just a white people problem that has impacted the way that Christianity is viewed from all people of all walks of life. And so like one of the sections in the book is actually called the white man's religion, right? It's four chapters dedicated under that heading because at the end of the day, what we have in a lot of cases is a white man's religion. That's not yeah. to say that Christianity as a whole is, but what we're actually practicing here is so Eurocentric to the point where Anybody who locates themselves in the story of God is now practicing something divergent, right? Like black people are doing liberation theology and women are doing feminist theology, black women, womanist theology, queer people doing queer theology. The only people who do regular theology are just white dudes, right? At that point. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's, that's, that's weird. Um, nobody else gets a seat at the table. The only way that you can get a seat at the table is if you strip your identity away and pretend that the way that the white dudes did it is the objective way to do it. And when we fail to examine that reality, we're robbing ourselves of an opportunity to actually humanize ourselves. Connect, like, wait a second. There are other people who do not look like me or think like me or experience life like I do using these same stories of Jesus, using these same stories of the Bible and pointing, heading in, in a different direction. How did they get there? Right. Um, and for me, it's, it's, it's a little interesting because I spent time in a few different seminaries. I've spent time in a conservative evangelical seminary. I spent time in a more mainline seminary, a historically black seminary, in fact. And I've gotten education from a, a few different ways. And so I can see how a lot of different people are engaging with these stories. Some of them, to me, I, I always name my biases, are frankly more compelling than others. But it isn't until I run into people who haven't even considered like other <laughs> metrics and I'm like, oh, so we've tossed everything out. And I get why you did that, because your idea of everything was much smaller than mine. Right? Um, and some of that goes to what W.E.B. Du Bois called the idea of a double consciousness. Right. Back in the early 20th century, where he talks about black people have to walk around with common knowledge that they were always like foreigners in their own country. And back to the earlier point about the fact that a lot of white people can live a perfectly normal and fulfilling life without having a meaningful relationship with a black person or a Hispanic person or an Asian person or, or anything of this sort. Even though I don't think any white person has lived a life without knowing a queer person. They might not have known it, but people be gay. It's how it goes, right? People um, be gay. <laughs> yeah. People, you people heard it here. Yeah. yeah you, heard, you heard it here. The breaking news. People be gay. <laughs> but... Um, the idea that, that life here has been structured so that some people can live a life where that is their, their reality and, and you don't even encounter another culture kind of um, steals chances for us to broaden our understanding of how other people are receiving these stories, how these stories are passed down. Yeah. Well, I think that there's something important. I'd, I'd be curious your take on this uh, because I think there's an important dynamic or something unnoticeable dynamic in deconstruction, especially like white ex-evangelical spaces and that's that, like, there's this realization of whiteness being a factor or an issue with these things. For instance, we talk about, like, Sarah Mosliner, who was doing a lot of research in purity culture, talks about, like, the, the racist roots of purity culture. How there was, like, this root in racism that stemmed the purity culture. Uh, uh, issues that we we're talking about and we're talking about healing from in, in these predominantly white spaces. It, it, it's at the root of it, right? Like it's not like a secondary thing. It was the primary thing uh, that whiteness impacted the way that we have um, gotten this like really 
uh, uh, hyper masculine form of gender and of you know uh, patriarchy and and etc. Um, in addition, things like I, I forget what the podcast I was listening to was talking about, even like drag culture being rooted in ballroom culture and people of color in New York, black folks, especially black trans folks in New York, developing ballroom culture and then turning into drag culture, which, you know, now when that is getting pushback, oftentimes I think decolonization is like seen in some of these spaces as the secondary, like, oh, we got to get to decolonization. And what I hear a lot of the black voices in my life saying is like, oh no, it's gotta, that's gotta happen first. Like you have to yeah. understand that that's at the root of it. Right. So a lot of these are interconnecting ideas and stories, right? I mentioned earlier that I'm a student, not just of Christianity, but of religion in general, because what religion does ultimately is not really like we think religion, we think of belief. That's not really what religion is. A lot of times beliefs will accompany that, but religion is, ultimately a function of how a society structures itself around stories, around signs, around symbols, the the importance that we're ascribing to these things. And so for that reason, I, I study it. Like when people ask me, uh, somebody asked me if I was in school the other day because they saw me walking around to have books on Judaism, Islam, Taoism, all this stuff and everything. Because I'm, I'm legitimately curious in that way. How are these people in cultures different than mine receiving the world around them? How do they view these things? And I say that because when we talk about decolonization, it's a reversal of what colonization is. And colonization is always a matter of some power extending their domain over a different culture. That's the definition of colonization. It's when one way of being is imposed over a different people. That can happen externally, like by sending colonizers. That can happen internally with a subjugated population within. And when that happens, you are literally restructuring a culture like that that's what colonization is and when it's done successfully to the extent like the roman empire of the first century or the united states of america from the the 18th through present centuries what what happens is you forget that other cultures were there on their own with valid expressions with valid stories with valid signs and symbols so when you talk about stuff like purity culture and everything, what happens is one way of perceiving the world and perceiving sexuality, um, and that's not to say that there are different, like, like nobody else had a standard of purity, but they're different. The way sexuality is viewed is different. Like there's, there's one um, <laughs> pastor online who is funny, he's acknowledged me twice in, in five years, but um, both times it was to, to argue that um, a husband and a wife wearing costumes and like role playing in the bedroom is sinful. Like, no, that that's an idea of purity. But no, like, he's like, no Christian before that would would argue that before the middle of the twentieth century. I'm like, well, first of all, Party City wasn't around back then. But anyway, <laughs> um, well, we have to recognize you're not even wrestling with with what role has a culture that has not been universal to Christianity. The idea that there was one Christianity at any point is in itself a, co a colonial project. That stuff is straight like the colonization and missions are kind of wet in that point because what happens is missions become a tool for colonization, for restructuring these societies. And so decolonization, to your point, Corlin, has to be prioritized because we, until we engage in that work, we can't even examine the presuppositions that we brought to the table. Because at the end of the day, a lot of the presuppositions we think are biblical or, or God-like are really cultural projects of colonization. Like, 
the idea of one man and one woman with romantic attraction being married. That's not found in the Bible. That's not what marriage is in the Bible. And we think that this is, oh, this is the Christian way of doing it. Okay, yes, the Christian way, because at some point Christians decided, but that's not like an intrinsic thing. That is a colonial problem, like of medieval Europe that we've carried with us. And until we examine that, then we can't even ask the questions to find out, okay, is there a wholeness to be found in other routes? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Wow. I kind of feel like, okay, so I, I sometimes joke that I'm like a deconstruction bartender, like just like open the doors and turn on the lights and then just like have the conversation, right? And I feel like yeah. in a bar, there's like two things you're not supposed to talk about. And we've covered one, which is faith. And I kind of want to ask a question about politics because that's the other one. Do it. Do it. I dare you. I dare you. Yeah. <laughs> you got to well, now. And there's a couple different directions that I want to go because one thing that I've seen you talk about is that that whole like progressivism, right? And that okay. whole idea that like I think that and I think that this overlaps with some of the other things that you've said because I think um, there's people that feel like they've got it all figured out. I think those are folks that are deconstructing that are like, I get it. I know now I know unleash me. I know, I know, I, I got know the answers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think that happens politically too. And, and I've heard you talk even on three black men, I heard you talk about like often the people that are arguing with you on Twitter are white people that have black lives matter in their profile and their, in their yeah. Twitter bios that are yeah. like, Oh yeah, we, you know, but then at the end of the day, like, they're still gonna act really racist and not be, or just say something that they're not willing to be, um, like called called in for, you know. And so yeah. I'm I'm curious about that that piece. Yeah. So the curious thing about that paradigm to me, right, is that what kills most conversations is a lack of curiosity. And whether or not you identify as a conservative or a progressive, liberal, or whatever, the moment you stop asking questions is the moment that you stop growing. Mm. So there are people who, and it's funny, almost to a man, they've grown up in very conservative settings, reached this uh, progressive awakening, and now think they have the answers and nobody's doing enough at this point. I'm like, yeah, it's cool on paper, but some of us really got to live these lives. You understand? And if you can ground the stuff that's happening in your head in the world around you, then we understand that like this stuff is a process. Now, I need to be clear when I say this. I'm not advocating for a form of centrism. Like centrism makes me sick for the moment. It makes me, I'm, I'm nauseated saying that word. I'm not going to say it again. I'm, I'm going to hurl on this podcast. What I am saying is that um, there is not just room for, but a need for conversations that do not demand the same type of purity people claim to be fleeing from when, when they were in their, their conservative silos or whatever, right? We can't, claim to be leaving purity culture behind and then construct a new form of purity on the other side because at the end of the day we still people it wasn't the ideologies that, that were like leading us wrong or it wasn't just the ideologies it's the the nature of us being people who mess up consistently and a lot of the time and what happens a lot of time in my estimation is that uh in a desire to atone for previous wrongs and stuff like that people end up going balls to the wall for new positions and stuff and demanding accountability of people who 
do not feel the need to atone for the same sins, right? Like I've, I've never lived that type of life. I, I, I've never held these positions or, or worked against these people in, in those ways that, that, that you feel the need. And I'm not sitting here saying that my hands are clean because obviously the way that society is structured, I've inadvertently participated in some things, but no, I wasn't ever out here with, with the signs outside the abortion clinic or nothing like that. No, there's, there's levels to this thing, right? And when we cannot to the point we had earlier, make room for the ways that other people have experienced lives, then we become um, a different type of arrogant. And yeah. I don't think either one of them is particularly conducive to like fostering community. Yeah. I Well, and I just, uh, one more thing, because I think I do see the sense sometimes where people try to pit different different types of liberation against each other right yeah. and i like sure. I, I think you know thinking about like marginalization olympics queer liberation and i yeah. and i it, like i do see that when when it comes to um it like that just that trying to compare it, it just doesn't get us anywhere right yeah I, a particular pain point for me recently has been um it's weird because I, I have a lot of respect for Jewish people because there are so many commonalities between the Jewish experience and the black experience, right? But one thing that keeps on happening um, in both directions is that there are a lot of black people who will use Jewish history and the pain of Jewish people in a very flippant way um, when it comes time to talk about their own pain. And then there are a lot of Jewish people who are used like black experiences and black things in a very flippant way. And I wish that there was more care around that because yes, there is um, a form of, of, of I guess almost trauma bonding that happens when like, no, like this, this is in both of our history, right? And I can draw so many parallels, but there also has to come a time when we sit down and be like, no, it's not cold to just talk about each other's wounds in this way if we can't do it carefully and with the nuance and tenderness that it deserves, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that is, as you talk about uh, the marginalization or the, or the oppression Olympics, when it's like, no, we've had it worse. Like, no, we don't have to argue about that at all. As a matter of fact, we can name our stories, we can connect over these stories, and we can fight to create a better world. But that won't happen so long as we're sitting here warring over who's had it, like, the, the toughest at which point. Yeah, that you know that reminds me of the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson because she yeah. really I don't know if you've read it but she just she dives into uh, how th those stories are intertwined especially right. during World War II and, and the Holocaust yeah yeah it's um it's, I actually wrote a piece on my newsletter a while ago about parallels between um the state of Liberia in the 19th century and then the creation of the state of Israel in the 20th century mm. it's a lot of like parallels even back to their foundation being an amalgamation of, uh, or, or, or the collaboration between uh, forces that were very frankly anti-black in the case of Liberia and black people who could not see a life of equal treatment in America starting something somewhere else. And then in the 20th century, we have um, forces that were very frankly anti-Semitic and anti-Semitic working with Jewish people who could not see a life of safety and, and prosperity in their own lands. and. Um, there's a lot of power, even with people being displaced in, in West Africa, in the case of Liberia and in Palestine, in the case of Israel. Um, yeah. But a lot of times we fail to look at the, the, the mistreatment, like the anti-blackness and the anti-Semitism that caused or set these things into motion that actually ended up causing a lot of damage to people who were minding their business at some point in time, you know? Um, and it just shows that like hate is a, uh, it's 11. It spreads. 
right? Um, in the moment we can't do right by people, we try to find compromises. It's 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 it's, it's uh it's ugly, right? Like it, yeah. it it doesn't get any prettier. I just want to say that I just like cracked the door open with politics, and you just opened it wide open. You you were like, we're going we're going through this door. Yeah, <laughs> and it's funny. But um, I'm here for it. I'm not, I'm not going to ask y'all to edit it out unless y'all want to or whatever, because this is the most that I've spoken on it. But I, I feel comfortable because I, I, I wrote about that. And I'm yeah. being as nuanced as I can possibly be here. But, like, there are some times when we don't look at, like, okay. So if this were a Christian podcast, we would talk about the nature. We would talk about the fall and, and the concept of total depravity. And it's the same thing in the regular world. Like, if you strip away all of the biblical stories, what we're talking about here is the idea that bad practices harmful practices will set more harmful practices in motion we'll see that happen yep. over and over again right and until the root of that issue is addressed we won't know what peace looks like because what was mm-hmm. oppression on the shores of america became oppression and murder and genocide on the shores of west africa in the case of Liberia. Yep. what was oppression in, this, in the middle of europe became that in the middle east and and we keep seeing that thing happen that is human nature one of the reasons why I remain a Christian with all of the questions that I have and everything is because sometimes these stories make sense of what I'm seeing in the world around me. So the idea that by the mistakes of a couple of people, a bunch of people after them knew a bunch of raggedy situations, know what the Bible calls a sin, I see that playing out in the world around me by people who don't even necessarily believe those stories, right? Um, and, and that's how I, I managed to stay in a religion because remember, religion is often... Uh, function of the the role that stories are playing and everything those stories make sense of the world around me yes. yeah yeah i was i was having a discussion with with my friend ross this weekend and he used the 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 illustration of like just like laying down an uno reverse he's like some people have just like laid down an uno reverse so they're just doing like the same thing just in the opposite right like i'm no i'm i'm no longer a christian so i'm just gonna be an atheist but they're being an atheist kind of in the same way they used to be a christian (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah because they they got rid of the stories but the practice like how you show up in the world like hasn't changed and whatever and that's why we got to really examine what what does it mean when we say we're a christian what what does all that mean because if if you're just getting rid of the creeds and the stories and say i don't believe this anymore okay same way the bible says i will show you my faith by my works no you got to show me what you believe by the way you work you still live in the same way you still treat people the same way you're still as argumentative you're still as combative you're still as certain you're still as sure about everything you just won't like cry at the name of jesus anymore what have we done mm-hmm. other than free up a sunday morning yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, exactly. I've talked on the podcast before, like I was, I, I thrive with the rules. Right. And so mm-hmm. then when I started deconstructing on the other side of things, I was like, okay, show me the new rules and I'll just follow the new rules. And it's like the, the biggest struggle has been like, sometimes there's a lot of gray area and I'm like, no, I need, yeah. I need like a certainty and an answer and a new certainty. And I think that's, that's where that comes from is that okay, this is what I had and this is was my comfort zone and now it, it turns into this is what I'm trying to find comfort in and that's not anymore what I should be trying to find comfort in. Yeah, one of the things that made it a comfort zone is the fact that Christianity and Christian communities come in with uh, built-in accountability. But sometimes we find out that what we were being held accountable to was not conducive to wholeness at all right Mm. and there are people who will need to leave their churches and their communities to find god i wholeheartedly believe that every day there are people who need to leave church to find god but at the same time one of the things that 
that wholeness looks like is community with other people and there's no community without accountability so we talk about what the rules are we have to be able to surround ourselves with people who are allowed to call us out and call us in we have to develop an ethic because without that ethic we are just floating around it's not good for our physical health our mental health any of those things and so that quest for rules i, I wouldn't call i would call it more accountability right because the thing about rules is um nobody can follow all of them all the time it's just not possible right like you want to be a law-abiding citizen, you're going to find yourself speeding by accident sometimes. Like, it just is what it is. Or speeding on purpose. Who knows, you know? Um, and that's another one of them stories that come straight out the Bible when, like, Paul makes the point that, like, we I didn't know I was breaking the rules until I saw what all of these things were. But the goal here, as much as we want it to be perfection, isn't so much that as an accountability. We need to understand what these rules are in place for, and that is for communal wholeness. So if we can develop an ethic around that, like I am committed to doing what is best for you because at the end of the day, what is best for you is what's best for me. Where you can find that, you find where God is. That, that That's that. what God is about. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. <laughs> Especially the accountability piece because I think that that is – obviously a, a, an aspect to this conversation that as we're people that are like a lot of people that are that are leaving certain forms of community maybe it's not christianity as a whole but it's a certain brand or a certain type or a certain church something that was dysfunctional but realizing that matthias Roberts said it on on our podcast a few episodes ago he was like he was like hurt's gonna happen like it's gonna people are you gonna get people together they're gonna hurt each other how are you gonna deal with it like how are you going to actually hold each other accountable and like heal the the and fix the thing together because right. if it's like oh well we're just not going to have that happen bullshit <laughs> it's going to happen yeah, yeah. And, and that's what what would tear a community apart even when with the rules and accountability in place is like one of the things that starts to unravel that for us is when we recognize that certain people in the hierarchy are not held to a standard of accountability right then you mm. recognize that the whole thing is a fraud and to me, that is one of the gravest injustices in the history of the church is that we have this idea. And I got this. I, I don't want to plagiarize nobody. Uh, my mentor uh, and my advisor when I was in seminary is a dude by the name of Dr. John Kenny, John W. Kenny. He's um, a brilliant man. But we, we have this idea that God is over us. Right. Um, where if you look at the creation story, that's not true. God is with us. Right. Um, and that's something that we see duplicated in the, the story of the incarnation where, where the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. God is with us. And the idea that God is over us and distant is not something that comes about until the fall in the Genesis story, right? It's when they believe the lie of the snake. So what happens when we sit here and worship this God who is over us, we're pleading for him to come on down and everything, is we end up viewing like this, this striving after this one who is above us. Getting above people is what it means to be God-like in that sense, right? And when you're above people, you feel like you can shirk certain levels of accountability. We call ourselves, oh, we'll be held to a different standard. No, I need you to be specific. What is that standard? And let me hold it to you right now. Let me hold you to it right now, right? Um, and because we have this broken view of God, this broken theology of God, we have broken ecclesiologies. So when we have this broken ecclesiologies and church structures and all of the accountability breaks down the higher up you go on the ladder, no, that's a fraudulent system and people are right to leave it behind. Uh, because we have to understand that God ain't up there. God is with us. Yes. 
Yes. Yes. So good. So fucking funny. good. And I know we're getting to the end of the podcast, but I of the interview. But here's the thing: Cortland and I always say whenever we have a pastor on, it's like we're getting pastor. I'm getting like church. Yeah, I've been past the great. plate. Where, where do I put it? Where do, where it's incredible. But before we wrap, I want to give you a chance to just plug your stuff. Where can people find you? How can they? Where's the best place to grab your book? And and just kind of, um, what? Yeah. How can they pre-order the book? We're a big pre-order. We push the pre-orders here on there after podcast. We give a fuck about pre-orders. Let me ask you. (laughs) There we go. There we go. Let me. Round one is this episode dropping next Uh, week. Yeah, next week. next okay, week. Okay, cool, 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 cool. You can pre-order this pretty much anywhere you get your books. You can do it on Amazon. Right now it's up on Barnes & Noble. If you want to support your local bookstore, you can find me on bookshop.org on Books A Million. Basically, wherever you order your books online, you can find Theologizing Bigger, homilies on Living Freely and Loving Holy. It'll be on your doorstep by January the 16th if you pre-order. Um, if you are like me, you're impatient, you don't like waiting, I do have a few spaces left on a launch team. Once you pre-order, you can sign up for that launch team at pastortrail5.com slash launch team. Um, and if you do that, we'll go ahead and get you an early copy, early, early um, release. I've had people already read through the whole thing, talk, tell me some things about it, like, man, this book is trash. No, I'm not. Nobody said that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a dope book. Uh, <laughs> but I, I would love to have you on there. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to join that launch team, all we ask is that you pre-order the book. We'll get you an early copy. We want you to be prepared to leave a review on an online retailer once it drops on January the 16th. And um, also share about it, not only on socials, but in person. Because um, one of the things I'm ready, I'm ready to, to make a guarantee, not a money back guarantee. I'm going to keep your money, but I'm going to give you the guarantee. <laughs> Love it's, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not doing that here. Um, but, but I guarantee that if you pick up this book, you will find something that resonates with you and that you think will help somebody else, right? And so if when you join this launch team, even if you don't, if you just get the book, I want you to share it with somebody um, who is going to help through something, whether they go to church every Sunday, whether they'll never darken the door of a church again in their life. At the end of the day, uh, my commitment is to wholeness, uh, everybody being the fullest version of themselves that I believe that God has called them to be. So that's about the book. Uh, you can find me on pretty much all the socials at, at Pastor Trey 05. That's Pastor Trey 05. Um, if y'all want to rap with me about anything, just go to PastorTrey05.com, hit that contact form, and we, we can have a conversation because I'm, I'm for the people. You know? Yeah. Unless you want to argue with Pastor Trey, then you're going to have to see his rates. You're going to have to pay the rate. And matter of fact, they're going, yesterday's price is not today's price. I need to, I need to redo my rate sheet because now I'm a real-life author with a real-life book in yeah. real-life bookstores. You yeah. understand? Your arguing fees got to go up. It do. It, it does. At the end of the day. I've read too many books. I've, I've read too many books. I wrote a book. I wrote a book now, and you're going you're gonna to act like it. Don't talk to me like I'm regular. Yeah. Uh, I love it. Um, yeah, we always say it's really important in, in our culture we all know that prime you can order the book you can get it the next day and people tend to go like i'm gonna wait to order it till it comes out i can get it next day but pre-orders are huge for authors it's just a big deal we know how big a deal that is so we're big like pre-order the book it really helps like tell the websites and the publishers and everybody that this is something to pay attention to 
Um, and you can even like ask your library to order it. There's a bunch of ways that please you can ask get... the libraries to get them in there. I'm, yeah. I'm a huge proponent of local libraries because I'm what uh, I think the tactical term is broke. Um, <laughs> and libraries are one of the few places on earth that don't expect you to spend no money. So I be in libraries all the time. I take my kids to the library. Yeah. Ask your library to stock this book in there. Tell them to get the hardcover joint. It's gonna be real pretty when they like put the little wrapping on it and all It'll that good last. stuff. Nice. It'll last. Yeah, be good. it's gonna last real good. Um, yeah. Awesome. Oh, also. Do, do the book thing for sure, but y'all can find me at Three Black Men in a New Living Translation wherever you get your podcast at. If you like reading writings and stuff like that, I'm at pastortrail5.substack.com uh, as well. So. Yep. Awesome. Yep. And now, because we've had Rob on the podcast, now that you've been, we got to get Sam on the podcast. We All gotta, right. We you shouldn't have told out. me that because now I'm offended. Why was he here before me? Can you answer? Can you answer that? Oh, uh oh, uh oh. Never okay. mind. Yeah. I mean, Rob's gonna be on the podcast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> It's just, it, Rob and I have had this ongoing, the Arby's debate, you know, and so um, okay. I, we just right. had to bring him on. I'm not going to, it sounds like an excuse, but. but It does I'll, sound I'll like bullshit, slide. Megan. And honestly, yeah. like, I'm on your side, obviously, but that, I mean, that does. I've always proclaimed that Arby's has the best milkshake, and I would take a picture and tag Robert <laughs> whenever, because he hates Arby's so much. Because and he's a heretic. I've, he's a heathen, and he's going to the bad place. So he doesn't know what he's talking about, first of all. I just, I have to say, I found out that the local Arby's, the one that I go to, somebody got arrested for peeing in the milkshake. Oh, machine, yeah. Okay. So you you and you in the bad place. That's where Robert's going. Literally, okay. I literally went back and searched my tweets for when I tagged Robert so that I could make sure that I did not buy Arby's milkshakes from that location in the window of time when the when the guy had gotten arrested and, and had the This is a weird end to this podcast. Yeah, a, I'm so sorry. That's a bold demon, man. You can't be Oh lord. I love anyway, it. Anyway. I love it. So well, yeah, I don't, anyway, yeah. you can let Sam know he's last, if that makes you feel any better. But we want to have Sam on. We want to have Sam on. Thanks for coming on. Um, yeah, we're huge fans. And you no, know, I appreciate y'all, man. Yeah. Make everybody go by the book. Like, make them under yeah. threat of yeah. violence. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We will. Yeah. We will. No problem. We got you. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> Until next time, thanks so much for being here Until with us. Time. All right. He's great. He, he, I, I'm so excited about having, I have my digital copy and I'm the worst at reading, reading digital versions. I get my paper copy. It's on pre-order. Um, I'm so excited to pour through it as soon as it comes in because I've already read a little bit in the digital copy and it is just, it is like listening to him. If you listen to Three Black Men or the new translation or follow, you know, Pastor Trey, on TikTok or anywhere, he has a voice that is unique and uniquely his, and it comes through in his writing, and it's so fun to read because it's like sitting down and talking to him or sitting down and listening to him talk or preach, which is a super fun experience. Absolutely, and I always love it too when people can kind of merge theology and this bigger picture, these conversations, and I can engage with that in a way that is that I can trust, right? And so that that's always um, a, a great place to be. And so, yes, pre-order his book, and we already talked in the interview about the importance of the pre-orders, but we'll just say it again. Yeah, yeah, we <laughs> cannot say that enough. Uh, Megan, where can people find you, connect with you, connect with the show um, moving forward? If they're listening and wanting to hang out. 
Um, you can find me at The Pursuing Life on all the places. Um, we want to just put in a little plug for our event for content warning um, in February. It's it's called Content Warning. Um, and it, you can check that out at contentwarningevent.com. I'm going to just give a little nugget that if someone's looking, we just had a price increase. If someone's looking for a promo code to get a little discount, reach out. And I have that for you for the in-person discount. We also have a virtual option. So if folks aren't able to make it all the way to Portland, sign up for the virtual side. That is going to be a good time. We're going to be building community, having some good conversations. Um, Cortland, yeah. where can people find you and the podcast? For sure. And I just, I'll add on to that content warning. Go check out, uh, if you're a listener to the podcast, odds are you are familiar with everyone who's going to be there as a collaborator. So many of them have had interviews, um, whether it's, you know, uh, Janice. Benjamin Fay, uh, Dr. Tina, Erica Smith, I mean, Damon Garcia, all these folks have been on the podcast. So if you're not familiar with any of them, go find their thereafter interview and kind of, you know, you can get an idea of who these folks are. Um, but the content warning event is going to be super fun. So I can't recommend enough that you go try to join us in person or virtually. Uh, I'm Cortland Coffee. You can find me across the web at Cortland Coffee. Most predominantly on Instagram, but I'm spending time on Twitter again. I'm back on there. I miss everybody, and there's still so many people that I like on there. So I am over there on Twitter, um, threads, uh, TikTok. Megan, where can people find you? I'm at The Pursuing Life on Twitter and Instagram. Also thread sometimes, barely blue sky, but occasionally. And then find us. Uh, I hang out a lot. I'm trying to hang out more and more over on the Discord server, which you can join by joining our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash thereafterpod. Uh, and joining that will get you access directly to the Patreon uh, or to the Discord. Uh, that's been so fun. Um, yeah, so, so if you want to hang out with us over there, that's a great way to do it as well. Um, links to everything at thereafterpod.com. Uh, Megan, anything else before we close out? I think that's it. Alrighty, until next time. Until next time. <laughs>